Uh, old stories are, are hard to break and hard not to tell again, so uh, if you've heard this one, okay, this is a children's Sunday, so I'm going to start out with something kind of fun, okay? There were twins, they were about nine years old, and they were not minding very well. Uh, it didn't seem to matter what mom and dad did to these twins, but they just were not willing to mind, they were not behaving, and mom and dad were at their wits end they didn't know what to do and so they got together in a strategy meeting late one night when the kids were in bed trying to figure out what they were going to do to help their twins mind better to obey better and the thing that came up with first on the list was to see the pastor they felt like for some reason if their twins went to see the pastor that that would straighten them out or at least get them on the straight and narrow so the parents could then have a leg up on the kids during the week. So they made an appointment with the pastor and because they lived about a block from the church, they decided to let their nine-year-olds ride their bikes to the church. And so when the moment finally arrived and the day was here, they sent their twins off on their bikes to see the pastor. Well, as they got into the foyer and they saw the receptionist and eventually the pastor's assistants, they sat down in two chairs and the pastor came in and introduced himself and made sure that they were kind of comfortable and some small talk. But he decided that he would see one of the twins at a time. He didn't want to be ganged up against the two twins, so he decided the strategy would be to see one at a time. So he brought one of the twins in, left the other one in the, in his, uh, in the receptionist area and brought them and sat him down. And, and as he sat down, he sat across this very large desk. I mean, for a small nine-year-old, this desk was enormous. And on the other side of the desk sat the pastor. And he sat there for a moment, and the pastor, as he took his seat, stared at the young boy for what seemed like a very uncomfortable length of period of time for the little kid. I mean, this nine-year-old boy became very uncomfortable. He was sitting in his seat. The pastor was in his seat across from the desk and was saying nothing. And the moment seemed like hours until finally the pastor broke his silence and he stuck his big finger out at the young boy and he said, young man, where is God? And the little fella kind of looked around and he looked under his seat and kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. A few moments passed, the pastor continued to stare at the little boy, and the little boy staring back at the pastor and feeling very uncomfortable now, not able to answer the question. The pastor finally broke the silence again, and he said, young man, he stuck his finger out, where is God? Well, this time, he looked around and got up out of his seat and began to kind of look around the, the office and finally made his way back to his seat and looked at the pastor and said, I don't know. So another long period of silence, and he finally broke the silence again for a third time, and he pointed his finger a little bit closer to the young man and said, young man, where is God? At that moment, he jumped out of his seat, burst through the office door, grabbed his brother on the way out of the reception area. They got on their bikes, pedaled as fast as they could to their house, burst through the front door, up the steps, into their room, and hid in their favorite hiding place in their closet in the dark. And in the darkness, just him and his brother, they sat there in complete silence. And finally, his brother broke the silence and he said, hey, bub, what's the matter? Why are we here? He said, you're not going to believe it. We're in big, big trouble this time. He said, well, what did we do? He said, we're in big, big trouble. He asked again, then what did we do? Why are we in big trouble? He finally said, because God is missing and they think we did it. The question is, God is, is God missing today? 
Is he missing? Not a question meaning is God absent because God is not absent. But is he missing because of a failure to recognize his existence and to recognize his activity in our midst? Is he missing from our lives? Is he missing from our families? Is he missing from our church? Is he missing from our culture primarily because of our neglect? There was a culture and civilization that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans where it says that they did not retain the knowledge of God. And because of that, he gave them up to their depravity, to their corruption, to their sin, to their wickedness, and to their evil. I'm convinced we live in the same culture today. For God is missing not because he is missing in that he is an absentee landlord. He is missing because we are failing to recognize him as the God that he is and to place him in the place that he deserves to be as the sovereign Lord over our lives, our families, our church, and our country. In the day of Noah that we read about in Matthew chapter 24, we see described for us way back in the book of Genesis, the account in which Noah found himself in a culture in which they had long forgotten God. If we go back to the studies in Genesis that we've been conducting for the past several weeks, we learn that God made Adam and Eve in his image. It wasn't long after that that they were in the Garden of Eden and they came across that forbidden tree with that forbidden fruit. Eve was deceived and Satan deliberately tempted her, and then Adam intentionally took what God had forbidden. He was not deceived, but he did it intentionally, deliberately, and as a result of that, man fell from their previous condition. Sin entered into the heart and into the life and the family of man and the world in which they lived. Shortly after that, we learn in Genesis chapter 4 where sin takes its first victim in that Cain and Abel are making offering unto God. God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's, and Cain becomes so angry that he murders his brother. God then comes to him and says, where is your brother, Cain? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? To which then God deals with his sin of murder and his sin of anger and marks Cain with a marking. And the Bible describes that Cain then left the family and took a wife. But it's interesting in that passage where you see where Cain left, it says about Cain that when he left, he went away from the presence of the Lord. That's huge. He went away from the presence of the Lord. That means that Cain displaced, I believe, his anger from his brother that he murdered to now God, and his anger for God caused him as he was sent away, he left the presence of God. He no longer retained God in his knowledge. He no longer worshiped Jehovah Yahweh. He no longer offered, offered sacrifices, and he no longer sought to give God uh, worship through offerings of thanksgiving and praise and offerings of, for redemption of sin. He just stopped. He walked away from God, and he became man apart from God. We see recorded for us just right after that, the lineage of Cain. Also in the lineage of Cain following that, you see that God then replaces Abel that was, that was murdered by Cain with another 
child to Adam and Eve. Anybody know the name of that child? Seth. Seth is born. And you see that Seth has a son, and his son's name is Enosh, and it says right after that that it was at that time the people then chose the name of the Lord and followed him. In other words, they retained the word of the Lord and the worship of the Lord and the name of the Lord, and they followed Jehovah. Now, here's what you've got. You've got in this text now... In the society, in the civilization of the world, you have two very distinct, very different cultures. Cain's, who withdrew from the presence of the Lord and didn't really want anything else to do with the Lord after that, and you have Seth and his son and his descendants who retain their knowledge of the Lord and who call upon the name of the Lord. They continue to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, Seth was a descendant of Adam, and the tracing of that lineage is uh, Enoch and Melchizedek, and it goes all the way down now to Noah. So Noah is a direct descendant of Seth. And so you have these two cultures that are multiplying and replenishing the earth, and these two cultures, these two very distinct civilizations are beginning to increase in number, and in the course of the increasing in number, they begin to draw closer and closer to each other. They begin to move closer and closer to each other, till eventually the two cultures and the two civilizations begin to merge. For the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, that the sons of God, and I'm convinced that's the sons of Seth, the descendants of Seth, saw the descendants of Cain and went, wow. They were attracted to them. For some reason, these daughters of Cain were attractive to these men who were sons of God, who were godly, who, who worshiped the Lord, and they intermarried And in the course of that intermarriage, like their descendant Adam, when they married, they did not speak up about their faith. The men were silent. Remember back in the fall of Adam and Eve? Adam was present when Eve was tempted, and he was silent during the whole temptation. Matter of fact, not only was he silent in the presence of this temptation, but he then knowingly took what was forbidden. He joined Eve in her sin. These sons of God, these descendants of Seth, are marrying the descendants of Cain, and they are keeping silent about their faith. They are not passing their faith down to the generation, to their children and their children's children. And the end result is, as we know, according to Genesis 6, that the whole earth became corrupt. The sons of God and the sons of man becoming one, and the whole earth became corrupt. I ask you, does that sound like today? The merging of the two cultures and the end result of the compromise and and the silence and the neglect and the marriage and the political correctness And all the kindness and the grace and all those things that we're told we're to be, we just kind of just merge the two cultures and the two civilizations to the point where now the whole culture has become corrupt. And I'm convinced that we are on the verge of the judgment of God. Now, many of you have been in church a long time like I have. And you have heard that the Lord's coming because of the corruptness of man. 
Haven't you? Anybody ever heard that before in the church? Come on. Can I get a witness? Anybody else heard that? Judgment's coming. And it's, it's usually been about World War II or, or some other things that have happened. Now, I think, I, th- I think the difference than today, than then, here, here's the difference. What's the difference? I think the difference is then it was, it was local. The corruption was local. Uh, it was a corruption about over here and over there and some here, but, but it was mostly over here and over there. And we saw pockets of, of, of satanic influence and, and human corruption and, and, and wickedness and evil. And because it was so great, then we came to the conclusion that the end must be near. And we heard a lot of messages on Jesus is coming soon. You better get ready. We don't hear that anymore, do we? We don't hear that anymore. But the reason why it's different today than then, when we heard it earlier, is that the wickedness and the corruption is not local, it's global. It's worldwide. We are seeing an epidemic of corruption that is not localized anymore. It is a global corruption, a global wickedness. It is all over the planet. It is in every culture, every civilization known to us today. And it's only going to get worse. And the depravity of man is merging with the godliness of man, those of us who are, and and eventually we will completely dissipate. We will dissolve into one culture of ungodliness to the point where we then will be subject to the judgment of God. And I'm convinced it's coming soon. We live in perilous times. We live in troubling times. It's hard to be godly in our culture. It's hard to raise your children to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to follow Jesus in this corrupt culture that we are in. It's it's going to become harder. I'm thankful I've already raised my children, but I've got children who are raising their children. I've got grandchildren that are being raised in this culture. And that scares me. And so as a result of that, how do, we, how do we lead our families through these troubled times? Let's take a look at the example of Noah, because Noah led his family do, during troubled times. I want to go through seven quick points very quickly. We're going to do what we call a flyover. They call Kansas the flyover state, right? You're flying over Kansas to get somewhere else. They need to stop here and find out what we got here, and I'm convinced they'll stay here. But anyway, we're going to do a flyover of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. We're going to sort of cherry-pick some points that I want to see in the life of Noah. So to lead my family like Noah, I must first of all secure God's provision. I need to secure God's provision. Genesis 6, 8. It's described 1 through 7, the corruption, the corruption, the wickedness, and the vile lifestyle that is there and the depravity of man's heart has become so wicked that God is going to destroy the earth by a flood. But in Genesis 6, 8, after describing the corruption of the world and the wickedness of the civilization in which Noah lives, notice it says, but Noah found 
favor with God. But Noah, in all of this corruption, the word but Noah is huge. Noah is being singled out as the only one in his entire civilization that did not become vile, sinful, and corrupt against God. The only one that God found. The only one. In a whole civilization, there was one man and there was one family and his name is Noah. And Noah found favor with God. The word find or found does not mean that he earned it. It means that he found favor with God. God gave favor to Noah. God gave him grace. The word favor means also grace. God gave, he extended to Noah the grace that he needed. Why did he give Noah above all the other families in this civilization the grace that was needed to survive the flood? We're going to go back. I'm not going to ha- I don't have time to do this. Remember, we're going to do a flyover. We're going to see this in the very end of our study. But if you go back to, to Genesis chapter 9 at the end of the flood, we learn that as soon as Noah stepped out of the ark and onto the dry land, the first thing that he offers God is a sacrifice. The first thing is a sacrifice. And he offers God two sacrifices. He offers God a a sacrifice of thanksgiving and a sacrifice for the atonement of his sin. And I'm convinced that was his practice even before the flood. Noah, like his descendants, remember he was of the descendant of Seth, Melchizedek was in his bloodline. Enoch, who prophesied and who preached that judgment was coming. I'm convinced that when Noah was born, he heard his great-great-grandfather Enoch preaching that judgment was coming. He knew that Melchizedek's name was that when I die, the Lord will return. Judgment's coming. And he heard this from his ancestors. In other words, his faith was passed down from generation to generation, from grandfather to grandfather to grandfather to father to him. His father was a godly man, and he learned of the importance of offering sacrifice. Because remember, Seth Seth continued to worship God. He revered the name of the Lord God, and he passed that down through his generation. But now when Noah comes on the scene in Genesis 6, 8, those men of God, those patriarchs of the faith, They're dead, and Noah's the only one who's left. But Noah is the one who is continuing to offer sacrifices and worship to Jehovah, to God, and he is offering him sacrifices of thanksgiving and sacrifices of atonement. Why? Because Noah knows that without the grace of God, he doesn't stand a chance of missing the judgment. And he's trusting in, looking to, and relying upon this sacrificial atoning sacrifice that he's offering to be a substitute for his sin so that he might be forgiven of that sin and counted righteous before God. For by grace you're saved, he read it earlier, but by grace you're saved through faith in that it is not of yourselves, but it it is the gift of God. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And Noah was someone who sought the gracious provisions of God. We need to seek to know Jesus for in coming to know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, we then receive the provisional sacrifice of Christ on the cross and it's through that trust in his sacrificial death that we then receive the grace of God and we like Noah are forgiven of our sins and are counted righteous. 
To lead my family like, no, I need to seek God's provision because in and of myself, I need his grace. For grace is unmerited favor from God. It's what he gives us, not what we earn. And Noah sought God's grace. And God provided that grace. But Noah found favor with God. God extended to Noah, the only one in his civilization, grace. Why? Because he's the only one that sought it. He was the only one that was willing to recognize his sinfulness, his humanity, and his need for a Savior, and his recognition that only God can bestow upon him what he cannot earn and what he does not deserve. So to lead my family, I know I need to seek God's provision. Secondly, I need to show God's purity. You see, as a result of the grace that he had been given from God, notice how he is described in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Because of grace, the byproduct of that was that he watched how he lived for the Lord. He was attentive to how he lived. He sought to live in a, according to a standard that it was right in the eyes of the Lord. It didn't mean that he was perfect, but he was seeking to live a way in which he was meeting or measuring up to the standards of God and the standards of God alone because the culture they lived in had totally different standards than God's and he wasn't concerned about the standards of his culture or his civilization or his neighbors or maybe even his church. He was only concerned about the standards of God and he sought to live by those standards. And because of that, the Bible said he was a righteous man. But notice he also then withdrew from the influence of his culture because it said that he was blameless in his generation. There was a whole generation that was living the wrong way, unrighteously, ungodly lives. And yet he separated himself from that lifestyle and refused to embrace the culture of his day. He set himself apart. And he turned his back on that and turned toward God. And it says, and he walked with God. He walked with God. And because of that, there was a purity, a righteousness, a blamelessness about his life that no one else had, no one else knew in his generation. I wonder if they would say that, if God would say that about your life. Notice not only did he secure God's provision and we need to show God's purity, but we must also serve God's plan. God had a plan. The plan is recorded in chapter 6, verse 13. And God then said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them. I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make room in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. God reveals his plan. He said, I'm determined now because of the wickedness and the violence and the depravity of man's heart, it is so deep that I'm going to wipe the face of the earth clean from the defilement of the sin of man. The only hope that I have to restore the world back to the way I had created is to wipe the slate clean, to rid myself of all this depravity and all of this carnality and all of this unrepentant sin that's going on. And I have developed a plan. I'm going to bring a flood. But in this flood, as I am wiping the slate clean and getting rid of all of the, the, the living beings, man and beast alike, animal alike, I'm going to deliver your family, Noah, 
from this judgment. I'm going to deliver you from this judgment. That's the revealed plan of God. And what was his response? Noah did, verse 22, all that God had commanded. Noah did some of what God commanded. Is that what he did? He did as much as he could of what God commanded. Noah put his best effort in doing what God had commanded. What does it say? That Noah did all. What is all? A-L-L means everything. God gave him a set of blueprints for this, this vessel that, I, I don't know about you, but it, it defies the law of gravity. It, 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 there's no way in the world that this vessel could ever, could ever float all by itself. And, and on top of that, Noah had never known, had never seen, had never experienced rain falling from the sky, which made the preaching that he did in the course of construction of this vessel even more ridiculous to those who heard him preach as they were coming out and seeing this man, this weird individual out in the middle of nowhere building this ark saying that rain is water's going to fall from the sky and the flood is coming. This guy's crazy. And yet he did all that God had commanded him to do. He did it all. He served the plan that God had. And yet God has a plan today to save mankind. And it's up to us to do all that he has commanded us to do in order to not only save us and our families, but save those who would receive the plan and reject the world through faith in Christ. To lead my family like Noah, I must serve God's purpose, but fourthly, I must solicit God's power. You see, there's something here that Noah realized and recognized that there was no way possible he could do this independently and apart from God. There was something that he would have to look for or long for or yield to in order for this whole thing to happen. There was no way in the world that this vessel that he was building was ever going to float independently and apart from the power of God. Is anybody a structural engineer here ever taken a look at the, the dimensions of the ark? Not only how it was built, but more than likely the weight of this, this, this vessel. And the likelihood, really, of it floating independently and apart from God is, is virtually non-existent. It was not a ship that we think about. We, don't, we think of maybe, okay, this was kind of like a, uh, a, a USS Warship, you know, that after you build it, you throw it out there and it floats. This was made of gopher wood. Anybody know what gopher wood is? And God had a design, God had a strategy, God had a way in which it was to be built. And, and Noah, I'm not quite sure, not only did he not understand that water was coming from the sky, but water was going to then cause this boat to rise and, and, and float on top of the water. And he, he must have, while he was building it, wondered, do you think he probably thought as he's building this with every you know, piece of wood that he cuts and every one that he nails up and, and all of this stuff, you think he ever thought, is this thing ever going to float? Do you think he wondered that? Do you think there was a, a little bit of thought in the back of his head Ain't no way. This thing, I, I, and then when God said two by two of all the creatures of the earth are to be loaded onto that, imagine the weight on top of that. 
And notice what the Bible says in in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. The ark is finished. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. This is the moment of truth. This is the moment of trust. It is a time now for, for Noah and his family to take a step of faith and get into this structure they have built. A step of faith, trusting that as they enter into this ark, it's going to float. Now keep in mind, when they went into the ark and God closed the door, for seven days, nothing happened. For seven days, nothing happened. Now if it had been a Baptist church, and the preacher had said, the floods are coming, enter to the ark, and we all got into the ark, and God closed the door, and for seven days nothing happened, I guarantee you there would be anarchy within 24 hours. Right? Seven days nothing happens. And they're waiting for seven days for the rain to fall. They've never seen rain. And then all of a sudden on the eighth day, the rain begins to fall, and the Bible says for 40 days it fell. That was a step of faith for Noah and his family. His family trusted his leadership. Together they got into the, into the ark. All of the animals came. The God closed the door. They waited for seven days. On the eighth day the rains came. For 40 days the rains fell, and the waters began to rise. That's the moment of truth. That's the moment of trust. But notice the moment of triumph. Verse 17, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased, notice, don't miss this, and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The ark floated. What a miracle. And I ask you, why did it rise with the water? Was it the architectural genius of God and the design of the structure? I don't believe so. I think it was the hand of God that was keeping it afloat above the storm. And there's a beautiful analogy here in the storms of life and the troubles that we live in. Whose power do we solicit in order to stay above the fray and the trouble and the sin and the hardships and the trials that come our way? Who does that? Not in our own strength, but in his strength alone. As we take the step of faith and trust in God, he will elevate us by his power and by his strength to keep us above the fray. Number five, we need to see God's purpose. To lead my family like Noah, I must see God's purpose. Noah waited on the Lord's purpose to be fulfilled. How long was Noah in the ark? Anybody know? Anybody? 360 days. I don't know about you, but that's a long time. Talk about cabin fever with a bunch of smelly animals in a zoo in a small confined space. The chores and you're talking about changing diapers. How about animal stuff? And the constant chores every day that, 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 that Noah and his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws had, had to deal with. And the tight quarters they lived in for 360 days. He waited on God. And every day was a day of faith. 
and just wondering, is there going to be a leak today? (laughs) But notice in verse 10, chapter 8, he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in that evening, and behold, in her mouth was freshly plucked olive leaf. Notice what it says, don't miss this, and Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. He waited. He waited until the ark was finished. He waited for the Lord to tell him to enter the ark. He waited for the Lord to bring all of the animals into the ark. He waited for the Lord to shut the door of the ark. He waited for the Lord to bring rain until the eighth day it didn't come. He waited for 40 days for the ark to rise to the level of the water. He waited for, for, for this incredible amount of period of time until finally the ark rested on Mount Ararat some 16,500, 16,200 and some change feet up into the air. That's how high the water got, 16,200 and something feet above sea level. And finally, when the water subsided, he rested on Mount Ararat, the highest peak in the region. And the boat came to land on there. And he waited for another 40 days before he sent out uh, a raven and a, and a dove. I'm not sure why he chose a raven. I don't care for ravens much. Anybody else kind of have that feeling? Uh, they're an incredibly smart bird, though. The smartest bird you'll ever find is a raven. And then secondly, the raven never came back, by the way. <laughs> and he sent a dove and finally came back. But he sent it a second time and it didn't come back. And the reason for that is because it found a place to land. And he knew that the waters had subsided. He waited on God to fulfill his purpose of cleansing the earth. God's activity never stops. And there are times in which you and I must wait on God to fulfill his purpose. But the purposes of God can never be stopped. You cannot thwart the activity of God. You cannot alter the activity of God, and God is in the process of constantly working. No matter how much evil thrives, no matter how much Satan dominates, no matter how much territory he occupies, no matter what it seems that he is able to do to advance his causes, God is still on his throne. And those of us who are faithful, like Noah, must learn to wait because in the end, God's purposes will be not only revealed, but they will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. And it may seem like God's not actively working, and we may wait for a long period of time, but as we wait and we trust on the Lord, we will eventually come to see that God is ultimately going to fulfill the purposes for which he has in mind, and we will then become recipients of that activity and of that purpose. Lead my family like, no, I must not only see God's purpose, but six, I must send God praise. What was the first thing when God finally said, hey, Noah, you can lead the ark that he did? The Bible says in verse 20 of chapter 8, then Noah built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered it burnt offerings to the Lord. Two offerings, a thanksgiving offering and a sin offering. The Bible says earlier that God remembered Noah, but Noah also remembered God. He never forgot God. 
He always kept God in his remembrance. And the first thing he did when God opened the door and he and his family stepped off onto dry land, they offered God thanksgiving and they offered him a sin offering. They knew they needed the atonement of God to work once again in their life. Noah knew that he wanted to start off a new world, a new order, a new way of life by first acknowledging God before anything else took place. And he wanted God to be first in not only his life, but the life of his family. And he gave God praise. But lastly, not only to lead my, my life like no, I must send God praise, I must share God's promise. I must share God's promise. It's interesting here that when God decides to bless Noah for his faithfulness, he not only blesses Noah, but he blesses us as well. For Noah's blessing and God's promise to Noah is to, to us as well. Notice in 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here it says that God blessed Noah and his sons. Hey, hey dads. You want God's blessing on your children? Follow Noah's example. And when God blesses you, he will bless your descendants. But notice in verse 12, And God then said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is, in, that is with you. But notice he says, For all future generations. Who's that? Us. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. There's a mission here, God says. Be fruitful and multiply, Noah. It's just you and your three sons and daughter-in-laws now. You have been given that responsibility to multiply and replenish the earth. Who did God first give that to? In Genesis, when he made Adam and Eve. Okay, Adam and Eve. <laughs> multiply. And God is giving him the same mission. Have plenty of offspring. But notice the message. It's a message of hope. Because I'm convinced that more than likely, rain was going to come again. And can you imagine, after a flood like that, and all of a sudden you're setting up camp and rain starts to fall, what's your first reaction going to be? Uh-oh, God's going to destroy the earth again. Maybe we need to run back in the ark. Right? I mean, didn't that stand to reason? God said, no, 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 rain's going to continue to fall from the heavens. But I make you a promise, I'll never destroy the earth again by way of flood. How are you going to know that the promise is true? That every time it rains, you will see a rainbow in the sky. And that rainbow is a promise. My promise, not only to you, but your children, and to every future generation from now on, that I will never destroy, through judgment, the earth, because of their sin, through a flood. So whenever you see a rainbow, whenever you see a rainbow, I don't care where you see it. I don't care who tries to reclaim it or to claim it as theirs. It's God's. The rainbow is God's sign to all generations, to those who put their faith and trust in him. That he will never destroy the earth again by a flood. And every time you see a rainbow... Be reminded of the promise of God. But God did not say that he would not send judgment to the earth. 
All he said was that I will not destroy the earth by flood. But judgment is coming. Do not be mistaken. The judgment of God at some time, at some place, at some point will come. For the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And we will be forever with the Lord. And at that time, then the tribulation will take place. And the judgment of God will affect the whole planet earth. And those who are unrighteous, those who are ungodly, those who are unbelievers will then suffer the wrath of the judgment of God. It is coming, and I'm convinced it is closer than it has ever been before. He said, as he read earlier in the passage in Matthew 24, but concerning that day and the hour, no man knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as we, in the days of Noah, as we were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Jesus is coming soon. Stay awake. Be attentive. Be watchful. For the day will come. While we have our mockers and while they're trying to blend the two cultures together and trying to keep us silent, we must like Noah and like Enoch and like Melchizedek and all the other prophets from then to Jesus himself, we must not keep silent for judgment is coming and we must proclaim the message and the news of Jesus and his return and the redemptive work that he has on the cross until that moment comes. For one day, judgment will come. And we who know Christ will be like Noah. He's going to save us. There may not be many of us left on this earth when it comes. But God saw Noah. And he recognized Noah's faithfulness dependence upon God and he plucked him out of the judgment and saved him and his family. These are great words for us today. Everyone else around you may be denying the Lord, forgetting God, living immorally, living depraved lives, yielding to sin. But we like Noah need to stand firm. We need to remain righteous. We need to be blameless. And we need to walk with the Lord. For we do live in troubled times. So the question that I have for you as we close is this. Am I leading my family rightly? How are you leading your family? Where are you leading your family? And what changes need to be made in your leadership 
so that you can be counted like Noah and be saved. Not just you, but your household. Joshua said, it's for me and my house. I don't care what anyone else here does, but it's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. What changes need to be made in your life and in your leadership of your family in which you might, like Noah, escape the coming judgment, for it is coming. We need a grace that surpasses our sin. Noah was not perfect, yet he knew that he could turn to God and ask for grace. Recognizing our sin and repenting of that sin and receiving Christ as our Savior and placing our faith and trust in him, we can become recipients of that grace. And once that grace is ours, because that grace is ours, we then live out a life of righteousness. Righteousness does not precede grace. Grace precedes righteousness. Because we now are possessors of the grace of God, his forgiving, atoning grace, we now live righteously for his glory and for his honor. And it's those whom he saves. Let's pray. song.